0: I'd like to start by saying that man is a worshipping creature. Before anything else, that constitutes our identity. And it is the most effortless thing for us. Now that might come as a surprise. It seems rather like we worship nothing. Religion is dying. Transcendence is dying. We have moved beyond the former superstitions into the secular. Now, that is true, but it does not mean that mankind's impulse to worship has perished with formal religion. In fact, it survives. And if worship is too religious a concept, praise is a bit more accessible. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers their favorite poet, poet." Walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians and scholars. Praise, in other words, is simply what all men do when they speak of what they care about. And such praising is good. It cultivates gratitude and humility and kindness. Yet, praise, such praise, be it over a person or an idea or a nation, can become worship. It matures from harmless praise into something of ultimate value, enthroned on the heart. Here's something that's strange but weird, says David Foster Wallace. Or sorry, that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. So the question is not, do I worship? But what do I worship? The question is not, Do I have a God, but which God? The heart will worship and adore and praise. That is its nature, and it cannot be reversed. So immediately then, the first commandment, have no other gods, addresses us at the very core of our identity and being. It comes to us not as a distant religious concept, unearthed from ancient history, but as the very substance of life, the secret engine that propels all that we do or say or think. And so I ask, what do you praise? What do you worship? What do you call upon? And ultimately, what is your God? Now, in the heart's search for something to praise, God claims the ultimate place, and indeed the only place. Our text this morning, Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 and 3, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So, standing behind the first commandment, giving it its force and rationale, is the covenant. God has promised to be our God and to make us his people. Indeed, this entire episode on Sinai, of which the commandments are only but a part, resembles a marriage ceremony. Moses you might picture him this way, is the minister officiating the marriage, standing between the husband and the bride. God, the husband, recounts all that he has done for his bride. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, etc., etc., and promises to provide all good things for her. And then he proceeds to tell her in the commandments how she is to live as his holy bride. And when Moses shares these words with the bride, she basically answers, I do. Exodus chapter 24, verse 3. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the, words, uh, all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. And as all weddings do, it ends in a reception the elders of the nation climbed Mount Sinai and celebrated in God's presence. The text reads, and they saw God and they ate and drank. So, why no other gods, we might ask? The answer is found in the covenant, the commitment that God makes to his people. And not merely commitment, but the depth of the commitment. God's decision to be for us isn't made on a whim, flimsy and lacking substance, but eternal, irrevocable, and absolute. He doesn't keep his options open, so to speak, but completely devotes himself to his bride. Not distant, but near, not aloof, but passionate, not uncertain, but fixed. And although it comes on the heels of the second commandment, it belongs to the first as well. It is the statement, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now for many, these words are hard to bear, and understandably so. Jealousy, And our current environment is far from a positive thing. A jealous person is often unreasonable and controlling and troubled and possessive and even dangerous. That is all true. But is that the last word about jealousy? I think not. If it is something that the Lord possesses and indeed is, I the Lord your God, am a jealous God, then it must be good. It has to be good when properly understood. So we would do well to distinguish between types of jealousy. As there are types of love and types of all the other virtues, some more perfect, some more disfigured, so there are also types of jealousy, principally two. There is a jealousy that springs from insecurity and fear. And then there is a jealousy that springs from undiluted love. Now, it's the jealousy that springs from insecurity that destroys. Rather than binding two people together in greater commitment and passion to one another, it drives them apart. It introduces suspicion. It undermines nearness and generally poisons everything good in a relationship. And therefore, many relationships have been torn apart by one partner's jealousy and the other fueling the fire. A jealousy that springs from love, however, is a good thing. It's a proper thing. Theologian Robert Jensen says that it is that aspect of love in which love also does not give up what it claims. I'll read that again. He says, jealousy is that aspect of love in which love also does not give up what it claims. Jealousy, in other words, is a genuine aspect of any real and deep love. It is the relentless, exclusive passion and attachment that is inherent in love. And consider, if there isn't this jealousy in a relationship, a godly jealousy, as the Apostle Paul calls it, can there truly be genuine love? If a husband and wife are not possessive of each other's affection and attention, but altogether indifferent, Can we rightly call that love? Have they not instead settled into their own separate lives, merely living together rather than in genuine devotion? It seems so. Instead, there is a rightful zeal to have and to hold that love inspires, that binds two people together. Love simply says mine. It claims. King Solomon describes love and jealousy this way. Song of Songs, chapter 8, verse 6. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is as strong as death, jealousy as fierce as the grave. Its flashes are the flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Genuine love, he says, is as strong as death. And its counterpart, jealousy, is as fierce as the grave. What makes the grave so strong and so fierce? Only that it never gives back what it takes. A body claimed by the grave will not rise again except by the Lord's power. It will be dissolved and absorbed, one day becoming indistinguishable from the ground into which it sank. It is the same, indeed greater, for love and its close ally, jealousy. True love takes and keeps and possesses and does not give back. As the Apostle says, it endures all things. It never fails. And so it is this love, undefeated, unfading, unmovable, that God has fixed on us in Christ. He has fastened his grip on us, entering into binding covenant with us, having sworn by two unchangeable things, and he will not relent nor turn aside. His love for us is undivided and undistracted. He is not allured by other, more attractive lovers. As the Apostle Paul says, Romans 11, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Thus, having committed to us as He has, having become our God, having made us His people, is He not rightfully jealous for us. Having given to us in such a manner. Now consider the Hebrews who would have heard that God is jealous. They would have understood that through the Exodus. These mighty deeds of deliverance. How much more us? How much more does God want to bind himself to his people than by becoming one of us? By dwelling among us in Christ. So his jealousy is not something we should balk at or be offended by, but something, when we understand it rightly, that we should be in awe at. What is man, O Lord, that you are mindful of? him? And so in this understanding of God's jealous love, utterly expelled is the notion that God is disinterested in our lives. That he is somehow careless or unheeding about what we do with ourselves. About the activities we give ourselves to, the things that we turn our heart over toward. He has quite literally devoted his life to us in Christ. And as love dictates, he expects the same. He's given himself to his bride and he expects the same. That our lives, from the greatest to the smallest, from the most magnificent to the most mundane, from the everyday to the once-in-a-lifetime, would be given to him completely. He is not content to know us from afar, to be ours, but at a distance. Rather, he takes interests and requires every last bit of our life for himself. As King David says in Psalm 139, verses 1 through 5, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. Listen to this. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before, and laid your hand upon me. And so in this first command, two seemingly irreconcilable things are present. A transcendent, all-sufficient God, creating the world and needing nothing from it, and a possessive, jealous lover who demands the worship of his people. Who is like this God, deeply hidden, yet most intimately present, unchanging, yet changing all things, gathering to himself, but not in need, searching, even though nothing is hidden to him, though needing nothing from us, though not profiting the slightest from our love, he takes keen interest in it, and indeed is wounded and angry and jealous when we don't give it to him. There is none like the Lord. And God's jealous concern for the minutia of our lives is expressed most concretely in the prohibition against other gods. He's a jealous God, and therefore he says, have no other gods. Now, upon first glance, it seems like a rather distant command. The old gods are long gone, conquered by the Lamb. Yet, probing the matter more deeply, it remains painfully relevant. And the key is the heart. The key is the heart. What comes to mind in the prohibition against idols or other gods is a worshiper entering a temple and paying homage before an idol making sacrifice, praying before um, this image of the God. And if that were merely all that the command required, external obedience, we'd be fine. We'd be well within the prescribed bounds. The command, however, is not merely external, but internal. Quite literally, the command reads, have no other gods before my face, or, before my presence. It refers specifically to the place where the Lord's presence dwells. Have no other gods before my presence, and God's presence dwells in the temple. But the physical temple no longer stands. The true temple is the church, the living stones that are being fitted and joined together a spiritual house. So the Lord's resting place is in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Thus, to have no other gods is a matter of the heart, the secret intents and desires of the inner man. Martin Luther, in his larger catechism, puts it this way, idolatry does not consist simply in setting up an image and worshiping it, It takes place primarily in the heart, which looks elsewhere um, than to the one God, seeks help and comfort in created things, in saints or in devils. So surely, he forbids that we enter temples and worship strange gods, but more than that, God's jealousy penetrates to the deepest recesses of the heart. He looks to the heart. That is the real place where other gods are made and worshiped. It is ultimately about what the heart trusts in, what it has faith in, what it seeks comfort in. That is true worship. And so the old gods have not disappeared. They've merely gone underground. The cults of Bacchus and Mammon and Ares have more worshipers today than ever. So being, therefore, a matter of the heart, it's really quite straightforward. To whatever you give your heart and entrust your being, that is your God. And the gods that set themselves up in our hearts mimic and parody the living God. He is truly judge and truly savior and truly sin bearer. And these other gods only pretend to be. And therefore, when we tremble before other judges and hope in other saviors and heap our sins upon anyone but Jesus, idols occupy our hearts and take control. Do you fear the opinion, opinions of others such that their judgment, what they think, controls your life? Do you seek your validation and meaning in their approval? That is simply to bow before another God, be it a perfectionist father or a hypercritical mother or merely the popular consensus. Theirs is the verdict that trumps all others, that dictates our actions and controls the course of our life. A false judge. Have you ever thought, if I only had more fill in the blank, then I would be happy. That particular thing, whatever it is, a person, wealth, or a particular lifestyle has become your functional savior. It has become the source of your happiness and contentment and security in life. Now the same but opposite move is to turn to something, say a substance or pornography or entertainment, to escape the pains and frustrations of life. It has become the refuge in which you shelter yourself, the cove that protects you from the storm, a false savior. Or what do you do when you're cornered? Do you lash out and blame others? Do you have so much trouble admitting your sins that you blame your spouse or your parents or your children? Or do you turn inward and condemn and berate yourself for your perceived faults. In doing so, you have created another God, treating others as the scapegoat. It's their fault. Or yourself as the sin-bearer in the place of Jesus. Now, there are many methods to identify our gods, but I'll give you three. The first is that when I cannot stand the object... Uh, Rather, when I cannot stand the objective criticism of the object of my affection. So, if this thing is poked at and exposed, and I, rather than acknowledging the truth, submitting to sound reason, if I become defensive and irate, then I probably have another God. The second is when I cannot accept an alternative to it. If I can barely stand the thought of this thing being taken away from me, if life seems unlivable without it, I probably have another God. And the third is, when I do everything within me and go to great lengths to defend it, if I am incessantly justifying this thing or behavior or idea, refusing to listen to sound wisdom and advice, I probably have another God. And so here's the thing. What become other gods are not always unrighteous and bad things. The reins of our heart can be given to debauchery or greed or some other unrighteous thing, but more often they're given to good things. Our spouse, our children, ourselves, and etc. These are but a few examples that illustrate the primal desires and needs of the hearts that attach themselves to something other than the Lord. And these primal desires are many, but some are trust. We have to trust in something. Security. We have to find our sense of safety from the world somewhere. Recognition. We have to be approved and validated. And delight. Delight. There's something which we must take joy in. Now the heart needs these things. The heart needs them because it was created to. Yet, when we seek these things somewhere other than the Lord, they distort and disfigure a person. The Holy Spirit in Psalm 115, or I'm sorry, 135, teaches us the following: "The idols of the nations are but silver and gold." the work of man's hands they have mouths but they do not speak they have eyes but they do not see they have ears but they do not hear there nor is there any breath in their mouths and then this those who make them will be like them yes everyone who trusts in them so the gods that we give our hearts to are but things created things and a heart That is given over to them, the psalmist says, will become like them. And so this is a universal law. We are what we worship. We are what we praise. We are what we love. So in putting our trust in these gods, we consent to their authority, giving them the seat of our hearts and allowing their influence to shape and mold us at the deepest level. A polymath of the 19th century, Ralph Waldo Emerson, puts it this way: "Truly, the gods we worship write their names on our faces. A person will worship something; have no doubt about that. We may think our tribute is being paid in uh, this in secret, in the dark recesses of our heart, of our hearts, but it will out." That which dominates our imaginations and our thoughts will determine our lives and character. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we worship. For what we are worshiping, we are becoming. So anything other than the living God, who is pure and undiluted love, wisdom, and holiness, inevitably makes for a hard master which injures and degrades its worshipers. Our human nature, which was created as a vessel into which the divine love would be poured out into, stars and languishes on gods that can only take and demand, but not bless and bestow. And in the end, we become like them. Mammon turns a man into a black, bottomless pit of greed, To him, everything is a pawn, a means to an end. Bacchus, the god of wine and passion, hardens a man to love and intimacy, dignity and respect, and turns him over to the relentless pursuit of pleasure, alone. If our gods are incompetent fools, we shall become incompetent fools. If they are empty, we shall become empty. If they are death, we shall become death. Who are you? Only the child of your gods. And so we said for the past couple weeks that the commandments are more a ladder leading us somewhere than an enclosure keeping us fenced in. They're more about us becoming our true selves than about hindering that process. And in the first commandment, have no other gods, that is absolutely evident. The good Lord Binds us to himself alone, who is the source of every good and perfect gift to protect us, to shelter us from the gods that disfigure and damn us. He says to us, look to me for any good thing you lack. Come to me for it. And whenever you suffer misfortune and distress, reach out to me. I and I alone will satisfy your need and help you in every trouble. Thus close to him, looking to none but him, devoted to none but him, we are free to flourish. Our hearts, once again connected to their original source and their ultimate good, are untethered and set free. His worship, restores and renews and remakes. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, says Augustine, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. So what then? How do we have no other gods? The answer is found in the nature of the problem. These other gods are not gods in the proper sense, eternal, unchangeable, self-existent, but finite realities. Whether a spiritual being stands behind them or not, they are creatures rather than the Creator. Thus, disobedience to the command can be summed up in the Apostles' words, Romans 1, verse 25. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever so quite simply to have another god or idolatry is to make a god of anything that is not god but we said humanity was created for god the heart seeks what it was created to seek love and security and blessing but Idolatry is when the heart seeks that in the wrong place, in the creature rather than the creator. So most often, the thing that drives someone into the hands, into the arms of another god is a legitimate desire. They find something, or they think they find something that their heart needs. And let's not pretend that these gods don't benefit their worshipers in some way. They recruit so many into their ranks because they have something to offer, at least initially. One, therefore, turns to the bottle because there is something there for them, a momentary peace, a blissful ignorance, a lack of pain. Another becomes a servant of mammon, of wealth and possessions, because it provides them with a very real sense of security and power and status an impenetrable castle to protect them from the changes and evils of life. Still another turns themselves over to the opinions of others because in their approval, being a people pleaser, they're validated and they're deemed worthy. And so on and on it goes. These gods, whatever they may be, do provide something. But, and here's the thing, it's merely the shadow to which the Creator is the reality. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. Only by being in some respect like him, only by being a manifestation of his beauty, loving kindness, wisdom, or goodness, has any earthly beloved excited our love. So in other words, what C.S. Lewis is saying in a moment of profound insight is that we find other gods, whatever they are, enthralling or beautiful or worthy of only because they're lesser manifestations of the original glory, which is God. They are cheap portraits. He is the original. They are muddy rivulets. He is the fountain. They are corrupted. He is incorruptible. So key then to setting aside other gods is recognizing that they are lesser manifestations or else grotesque distortions of the original beauty and majesty that we were created for. Listen to the Lord's words to his people in Jeremiah chapter 2. They're, they're just pregnant with wounded love. Jeremiah two eleven 11 through 13, he says, "'Has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? "'But my people have changed their glory "'for that which does not profit.'" Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder, be very desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So, our so called so-called gods that we turn to for security and, and, and trust and pleasure and delight and all other things. They can hold no water. By the time we bring them to our lips for a drink, their substance is poured out. They are broken cisterns, not full and brimming, but empty and in need of filling. These gods cannot give, they can only take. They cannot bless, they can only be blessed. And it is faith alone that can open one's eyes to this. A discontented spiritual hunger one has to become sick and tired of their gods, weary of serving them before their eyes are open to the living God. As a wise one per, one person once said, other gods are like bad boyfriends. They start out well, but eventually they treat you mean because they've given, because you have given yourself to them so much that you are their slave. And other gods never deliver what they promise. So, Having understood that this God, who is indeed the only God, is the fountain of all blessing and all glory and all honor, what must we do? Quite simply, obey the commandment. We must stubbornly and narrowly and single-mindedly devote ourselves to Him alone. Swearing off everything else, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, says the Shema. A prayer the Jewish people would recite every morning. It continues, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And we know when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, he said it was the Shema. To have no other gods means to be so devoted to God in Christ that they cannot enter the picture at all to seduce us. If all is his, all our hearts, all our soul, all our might, nothing remains for the other gods. They starve without their food. So I'd like to end by reading a promise from the Lord. It's Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 and 2. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk, without money and without cost. He asks, why do you spend money for what is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourself in abundance. Let's pray.